Joining us on Liberty Station, uh, we are at a remote area. I'm, I'm here with Bryce Eddy. We've got an amazing guest tonight. Uh, but Bryce, tell everybody where we are, and because you're you're responsible for this setup, and you've done a really good job, man. And and Thank behind you. the camera is Rob, the guy that you put together, not me. Yeah, Rob. yeah, Rob the photographer. Yeah, Rob the photographer. Uh, yeah, su superstar. Yeah, well, we came down here um, uh, quick this morning to, to set this up because of this special guest. And um, we're here at the Ritz-Carlton in Laguna Niguel. Yeah, Dana, Dana, Point. Dana Point. Yeah, yeah, which is, uh, you know, about as beautiful as it uh, gets. We're here uh, for the Council on National Policy. And uh, as a result, we had I had the distinct privilege uh, to pick up our guest tonight, uh, flew to go get him in Hanford, landed in Orange County, and, you know, happy to do it, but it was kind of, you know, the payoff is he'll come and be on our live stream because we're so small. We really, you know, and this man is known throughout the entire country. He's, he's the most underutilized asset in America. He's a great blessing. I had the great privilege of uh, being a student in his class 34 years ago. Wow. Um, and I was, I probably didn't do well. I don't even remember. I, I hope I didn't drop it. I don't know. But um, since then, um, this man has just gone off the, the radar. He's so well-known. He's a fellow at the Hoover Institute. He is a professor emeritus at Fresno State and uh, a brilliant mind. Uh, tonight, you're going to get stretch marks on your brain. That's just all there is to yeah. it. Well, he's also a military historian. Military historian. And, and this, these and are the, the right times to be talking exactly. to a military historian. Exactly. So uh, if you don't know who it is by now, our guest tonight is... Dr. Victor Davis Hansen. Welcome. Thank you. Good to have you. Uh, Dr. Hansen, for the folks tuning in, uh, here we are. We're in the middle of this mess with the Ukraine. I can't think of a better guest to have on our program to speak to that because it's confusing to so many people. And, and I, I consider myself pretty well engaged in the geopolitical horizon. This one's got me baffled. Can you give us a 30,000 foot view and then break it down the way you are so gifted at doing so folks can understand what's taking place? And is this World War III? No, I don't think it's World War III. Yes. Uh, <laughs> anytime you have a war, deterrence breaks down. And deterrence is just from a Latin word, deterio. It means that a person who wants to be aggressive quickly does a cost-to-benefit analysis and finds it's not worth the effort. It's too scary or too un... They might suffer more than they gain. And I, that's important because we have to realize that Vladimir Putin is an opportunistic dictator. So in his mind, he's got 100 million fewer people than the Soviet Union, and he's got 30% less of the territory. And he wants to be a superpower, and he can't do it with 140 million people. And the 30% of the territory that he lost with the collapse of the Soviet Union, he meaning the personification of Russia, was some of the wealthiest area. Right. Ukraine is very wealthy in farmland, uh, rare earth metals, natural gas. So he's always looking. We take, we take that as a given. But why doesn't he go in every year? Why doesn't he go into Finland? Why doesn't he go into Norway? Why doesn't he go into, excuse me, uh, the Eastern European countries? Why doesn't he go into the former Soviet republics, Belarus or, or Lithuania? And the reason he doesn't is usually it's not in his interest. Now, we know that he's gone in on uh, four occasions, 2000. A, in disputed territories. Yes. Yeah. Well, former Soviet republics. He went into Georgia in 2008. Why did he do that? We had 
up until now the highest real price in oil. That was right at the end of the Bush administration. Oil was getting up to $80, $90. He was flush with gas. Europe was dependent in, on imported natural gas. We were, he thought that if the, he went in, it would be tense, the price would even go up, he'd get more money, we would be short of energy. Uh, more importantly, he knew that George uh, W. Bush was a lame duck. He probably thought that it looked like the Democrats who tend to be, he and Putin's mind, more conciliatory to him. And we were bogged down in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. And he was right. We, nothing much happened. Now, and the next time he went in was 2014. So what, what would make him go do this again? And we have to go back to the same formula. We lost deterrence. So 2014, remember the price of oil? That was when in that 2008, uh, Sarah Palin had said, drill, baby, drill. And yeah. then Romney was 2012, we got a drill. And the price was very high. He was flush with cash. We were strapped. Europe was really hungry for energy. More importantly, Obama had gone on an apology tour. He'd invited the Soviet Union back, excuse me, the former Soviet Union, back into the Middle East. They hadn't been there for 40 years. They went into Syria, remember, they were going to yeah. help us, quote unquote, find WMD. That didn't work out very well. No. We had uh, dismantled our missile defense on his request. And we remember that uh, Seoul, South Korea, I think it was August of 2012, election year, where Obama said, tell Vladimir, to Medvedev, but he said, tell give me, give Vladimir, me time when I'm, yeah. Yeah, give yeah. me some space, and I'll be flexible on missile defense. This is my last like, quid pro quo. And everybody got what they wanted. Putin did not invade in 2012. Obama got elected, and we gave Putin what he wanted. We got out of uh, missile defense with the Czech Republic and Poland. Okay, so he went into eastern Ukraine, and he went into Crimea. And we had a hiatus, the four years of Trump. Now, why did we have a hiatus? Because he restored deterrence, defined as Putin did not know, heck, Americans didn't know what Trump was going to do at any given moment. He could do anything at any time. He was unpredictable. But more importantly, he got out of an asymmetrical, they, his advisor said, you can't get out of this missile deal, this long, medium, he did. It, it favored Putin. They said, you just, you just can't kill mercenaries that are attacking us in Syria. He killed over 200 Russian mercenaries. He got rid of Soleimani. He got rid of Baghdadi. He got rid of ISIS. Obama, even though he was impeached for holding up aid because he had a legitimate worry about the Biden consortium and Burisma in Ukraine, he sold them offensive jav these Javelin tank weapons that are very effective. Right. Obama froze those and refused to sell offensive weapons. He did. And so he also, if, if you remember, we got up to about 13 million barrels of oil, crashed the price, Putin was hurting. Uh, in, he very strongly uh, sanctioned the Nordstrom II pipeline against Putin. And he encouraged the East Med pipeline between Cyprus and Greece and Israel. That was going to supply Italy with an underground pipeline. From, and so in Putin's mind, oh, he also remember very controversially, but he really forced NATO to spend another $100 million. He raved and he ran it. He said, we should get out. You're not going to pay your two. But he got what he wanted. And we increased our defense budget by about 100 
billion dollars, hundred billion for NATO, hundred billion. So the readiness Putin, of the military was yeah. So much he improved. yeah. Putin looked at this and said, "My God, he just yanked out of this treaty. This treaty. He sold my enemies' offensive weapons that have nullified my tanks. He's crashed my oil price." He's got NATO back at six or seven countries are now meeting their 2%. And, and yeah, paying their fair share. And he, he didn't go. He didn't go in. And again, he's always wanting to go in. Just He's sort of like a cat ready to eat a mouse anywhere he can find a mouse stupid enough to go out. It was, and then we had Biden. And what did Biden do? First thing he did, we were being hacked by Putin. And that was Putin's surrogates. Um, and you remember... Um, they hacked the colonial pipeline, one million barrels a day. And we, what did Biden do? When they hacked, he went to Putin and he said, if you're going to hack, I'm kind of being facetious, but it's, it's a fair representation of his message. If you're going to ha- hack, do not attack these 16 entities. And he gave them a list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It was here, here are the ones that matter to us. Yeah. yeah. Please don't touch these. I could not believe that when he, he did that. And then, not, and then he cut back by three million barrels of oil per day. So he canceled the Anwar, that could have given us a a million barrels. He canceled Keystone, we were getting a million almost we could from Canada. He froze all federal new leases. He told banks not to finance horizontal drillers and frackers. He told them their days were numbered. And you put it all together and they just sort of said, okay, three, and the price soared and Putin has now got over $600 $600 billion in cash reserves from oil sales, a billion dollars a day. Oh, and he also, remember, took uh, the sanctions off the Nordstrom pipeline. So he's, most he's, of, he's emboldened with a big yes. checkbook. Yes, and then he, the worst is, of course, the skedaddle from Afghanistan. So Putin looked at that and he thought, wow, they gave up a, <laughs> a billion dollar new embassy. They gave up a $400 million refit bagram that was only an hour or two away from China, an hour from us. And they gave, they left $80 billion. Well, when you were going through that checklist earlier, you know, about the past, I was going through the checklist now and go, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So if I were, if one way of, Phrasing all of this verbosity is I could just say, if you came into office and you said, how do I get Barack um, if I was Barack Obama or Joe Biden, how do I get Biden uh, or Obama, how do we get Putin to invade Ukraine or Crimea? You couldn't have done a better job. You destroyed deterrence, you invited him in, and here he is. And then... Was that purposeful? You, you, you no, I don't us? think it was a purpose. I think it was a naivete. Because remember, the the left uses, and the Democrats in particular use this. I guess we could call it a Freudian or psychological method of projection. Whatever they're doing, they project on their their opponents. So when we look at the last ten years, we just mentioned the hot mic with. Yeah. Obama, but he had that reset in uh, Geneva, and I think it was June of 2009, where Hillary pushed that red jacuzzi button. Yeah. And George Bush was too hard on them, and he sanctioned them after the Georgia invasion, and we're going to reset. And they, stalked, they, they thought they were going to have, and Putin just, uh, this was a blank check. He in, interfered in an election with hacking, and Obama went on his Obama apology tour, 
And Hillary, with her advisors at state and other people, green-lighted the Uranium One sale. Remember right. that? That was 20% of North American uranium that got into Russian-controlled hands. And then just accidentally, Bill Clinton was paid $500,000 a speak in Moscow, and several million dollars, a lot of million dollars, went into the Clinton Foundation right. from Russian. And then we had the Biden family, Burisma. Enrichment. Yes. And so what I guess I'm saying is that the Democrats then, when they were doing this, when Hillary, especially when Hillary was running, they projected that Donald Trump was was Putin's puppet. And when you read Democratic or left-wing commentary today, they still say, you know, Robert Mueller went through 22 months, $40 million. He didn't find collusion. John Brennan lied under oath many times. So was James Clapper. James Comey said he couldn't remember 40, 245 times. So there was no there there. But today they're saying that he colluded, even though if you, uh, what I mentioned by any fair standard could be kind of a collusion because the Steele dossier used uh, a Clinton uh, subordinate in Moscow to, and he was fed Russian information. A lot of the crazy things that in the Steele dossier, Donald Trump uh, watched people urinate on the bed that Obama slept. You'd have to be yeah. a nut to think up that. And that came Well, they from, were all drunk that night, they said, yeah. when they made it all up. You know? And the Russians, they, uh, they supplied that. And so that's where we are. And then... Where's it going to go? Well, I mean, Putin's I mean, got the, about the Ukrainians seven... Ukrainians seem to be fighting back. They are. I, I think if I were to be critical, I mean, they had 70,000 troops on the border in November. I don't know why this administration did not immediately just, we have four NATO partners on the border of um, Slovakia, Romania, Hungary, and Poland. I don't know why we didn't flood the country with uh, SAM, you know, anti-missiles. We should have had javelin, te- we should have just, because they're running out now, there should have been depots all over that country. They've taken and down, the, as you were pointing out earlier, large transport planes. Two large transports. Like C-5As in, in but the- But just think, had they, they had 10 times the amount that right. they have now, and they were organized into bands, and they, wouldn't, they would have had air superiority. But anyway, given all that, they're, they're fighting well, and Putin, of course, He's, he's got, not favored at home, it seems like. There's no, he's, protests. he's unpopular. He's suppressed dissent. He's jailed people. He's banned everybody from Twitter. He's got seven. What does he have going for him? He's got 7,000 nuclear weapons. We've got about the same number, maybe a little less or a little more, depending on whether they're modernized or not. And he feels that he's going to be close to 70 years old. Like he's six, coming on 69. He doesn't seem like he's in good health. There's been rumors about it. Right. So a lot of people feel that he wanted to have a legacy, so he wanted to move. And when you lose deterrence, as we've discussed, he, he, he gambled, and he feels he's going to win more than he lose. I don't think he is. I think we're going, the NATO countries will be shamed into sending a lot of aid at night through these uh, borders. And when you get a javelin anti-tank missile and you get a surface-to-air missile that can knock down, you know, you can get a $2,000 missile can knock down a $100 million plane. That's pretty asymmetrical. And if they continue to do that, I think it'll get pretty messy. But what, just to finish, what no one knows is, so 
what if he can't get into Kiev this week? What if he has really lost already three or 4,000 people? What if he loses six or 7,000? Yeah. What if there's massive demonstrations in Russia? What's he gonna do then? If you were Putin, I think his only way of thinking would be to escalate. Right. And that would be to what he did in Chechnya. When this started to happen in Chechnya, he just took in artillery platforms and he just blasted downtown Grozny. So maybe he'll do that, I don't know. And I don't know what we would do if Ukraine is not a NATO country. I think it, in an ironic way, if it was a Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine wasn't, we'd be in big trouble because yeah. what would happen was, I don't think that would have stopped him. It wouldn't have deterred him because he, he would think that, do you really think the Dutch or the Belgians are going to come to the aid of a fellow NATO Ukraine. Well, I don't even think with they America would've... promising Ukraine backing, uh, what sanctions? Now they're being invaded. It just seems as though, you know, he, he, the, President Biden talked tough during the election that you know Trump's not going to do anything. But I'm the guy that that Putin the fears. Bu- Trump's a bully, he said, yeah. and so is Putin's a bully. And I'm the guy that went toe to toe with him. And yeah. he and said the other day, remember, folding. he said we're going to have a conversation about sanctions in a month. Yeah. And he hasn't used the strong, he hasn't shut them out of the world banking system. Unbelievable. So he, he, he has the power that if a Russian in Moscow puts that card into an ATM, it's not going to work because these banks have all of these shared uh, relationships. But I don't think they're going to, uh, he's not going to do that. Well, I know you have to speak tonight and I don't want to dominate the time, but would you just afford me one opportunity to share with the folks who are viewing uh, you and I have in common a love for California, although the California that we grew up in and we we loved is wholly different than what we're experiencing today. And you, you, you live on a farm in Selma that has been in your family since your great-grandparents. And the original house, you were talking about yes. how you're, yes. you're fixing it up and you're, you're holding steadfast, but it's almost as though everything you, you've known is gone but yet you still love this state and you know you travel the state quite frequently especially going to the Hoover Institute in Stanford then you're in the San Joaquin Valley you're down here often do you have a hope in for California that politically it can change well we had 32 years of the last 60 with four Republican governors. I know that Arnold Schwarzenegger wasn't much of a Republican, no. but we did have that. Governator. Yes, we had Ronald Reagan and we had George Dukmajian and Pete Wilson. Yeah. They were very conservative. This California population passed 187 that denied illegal aliens who were here illegally and residing illegally, uh, state entitlements. They passed 209 that, that prohibited the use of race uh, for hiring or admissions. They had three strikes, so it was, a, it was a very conservative area. So what happened? And we should start with the idea of the 40 million people, about 15 million are very conservative. And I'm always amazed that when my friends from Idaho or Utah or Oklahoma or Alabama come to California and they go north of San Francisco or they go maybe along the Sierra foothills right. or they go from Bakersfield to Fresno they find people who are really, really conservative. conservative. And this this gave us Devin Nunes and Kevin McCarthy. So, but right now we have a super- Tom McClintock. Yes, Tom McClintock. We have a super democratic majority in both houses of the legislature. By the way, the last time they didn't have a super majority was when I ran for the assembly. They spent six million bucks against me. 
and we stopped them because yeah. they they lost rate. They, they we don't have one one to. Republican state ho- statewide office holder, yeah. and I think we're down to eleven. We were at seven. We went up to eleven. We have eleven conservative congressmen after out of fifty-two or fifty-three. So what did that? And I always try to say when I, how can that be reversed? But to reverse, it, you have to know what happened. I think three things happened as I think about it. Number one, we had unchecked illegal immigration. So there were, there are more people, I don't know the data this year, but until this year, and I still think it's true, more, there are more people who entered California illegally, the U.S. border, and resided illegally than all the other uh, states, states combined. combined yeah. yeah, so we had about, there's probably 21 or 22 million illegal aliens, and we don't know how many are in California, but we do know that whoever reports the numbers usually tries to downplay how many they are. And many of them... Unless they, they it's a census and they want to keep the congressional Yes, for the census they do. Yeah. But many of them were not like prior migrations. We forget that from Mexico. They were not from northern or central Mexico. Very few of them, this wave... They were mostly indigenous people from Oaxaca and Chiapas. That's a Yucatan area? Yeah, yes, they, they were not. Many of them did not speak Spanish. Most of them did not have a high school diploma. Uh, they did not have skill sets or capital. So my point is that they became wards of the state. Right. And then they were encouraged to do that by the Democratic Party and the left because... They flipped California. They thought that helped in the way that they flipped Nevada, they flipped Colorado, they've uh, flipped New Mexico, probably Arizona, maybe Georgia. So they see this as a political weapon. The second thing was, in when I was a student at Stanford, uh, believe it or not, that's where you got your PhD. Yes, the Silicon Valley was considered. It wasn't called Silicon Valley, but the let's say San Mateo, Sunnyvale. Mental Park Powell, they were considered kind of blue blood Romney Republicans right. and some liberal, but it wasn't like it is now. And what happened? We have Facebook, Twitter, Google, uh, Apple, put them all together, or we've got about $5 trillion in more. We have a, a a level of wealth we've never seen in the history of staggering wealth. We have kids, we have hundreds of millionaires, multimillionaires, and they are exempt from the consequences of their own ideology, and they give to the left-wing party. So yeah. what that means is five, you put all these requirements for California gasoline refinery, they don't drive very much. If yeah. they do, they have a Tesla, or if you have 27 cents a kilowatt hour, they don't care, it's pretty cool. It's not, I have an office at Stanford that has neither a heater or an air conditioner, I don't need it. Right. Where I'm home is 109. It's like living summer. on the surface of the sun in the summer. Yes. Yeah. And so <laughs> people they, in Selma go to hell to beat the heat in the summer. They go to Walmart to do it. They go to Walmart because <laughs> they sit there free. And and it, it just, you know, they're all for teachers union. They hate charter schools. They hate homeschooling. And their kids are all at Sacred Heart or Menlo school, prep school. Yeah. So that, and that's very influential. So so that's the funding of the mess. Yeah, and then we've had about 8 million people the last 30 years who've looked at this, and they say, in today's terms, they would they had said, but we had comparable terms before, they said, you have the highest gas taxes in the United States. You now have 13.2 highest income tax brackets. I think we're fourth in the sales tax. We have the highest debt. Yes. 
We do. Next four largest states don't equal our debt. I know it. And then you look at the quality. Our schools by eighth and and junior high school test scores are about 44. And we lead in homelessness and in poverty. Yeah, we lead six. I think we have half the nation's pot, and we have one third of the people on state on federal or state assistance. One third in the nation live in California. We could go on. It gets it gets bad. So people said, we pay all this, and the more we pay, it gets worse. So I'm leaving. So they went to no income tax state, Texas or Florida or, or Nevada or low, you know, Idaho or Montana. And they're gone. And that was the old Pete Wilson, DeFazion, yeah. Reagan constituent. So those three things were a perfect storm. And that's what we have now where the elite left uh, along the coast. Uh, and that's where... There's uh, two Californias. Yeah, there's two Californias. It's La Jolla all the way to... Berkeley, and I'd say this, that's where the money is. That's where Caltech, Stanford, UCLA, UC Berkeley, most of the UC campuses are. That's where what corporations are left have their headquarters. That's where the money is. And they, don't, they run the state, and they're, they're, they don't really worry about middle-class people. So we, we worry that housing, where we're sitting now yeah. for the next 600 miles up the coast, is about somewhere between four and $800 a square foot. Inland, it's about 250, and no one can afford to live here unless they inherit it, or they're very wealthy, or whatever. So they don't care about a middle class. They don't have a middle class, and, yeah. and that's why Joel Kotkin and other observers have used this word feudal or medieval, meaning that they have a, a coastal elite, and they're in the keep, so to speak, but, castle and then we have peasants. Yeah. I guess I qualify for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting though because uh, some of it's coming home to roost. We're it seeing is. that with crime yeah. and, uh, and that's been a particular area of ours. There's two things and you say what can happen because these were the demographic changes of a lot of techies came in, a lot of people went out, a lot of people came up from Mexico, but there's always a law of un, unintended consequences. And as I see it, there's two unintended consequences. I don't think anybody in their right mind, the closest we've ever gotten to this point in history was the McGovern effort in 72. When he hijacked the Democratic Party, he wanted to cut the carrier strength in half, he wanted to have welfare, and he was slaughtered at at the poll. And Nixon obliterated. Yes, and I looked at, you looked at those, that field in 2020, and when you heard what Beto O'Rourke said, or Elizabeth Warren, or Cory Booker, or Kamala Harris. People got scared. So the old guard came in and they pulled Joe Biden out, and he was third or fourth in the polls. He was non compos to be candid and a little cruel. Does, and that they, mean, does that mean a couple hot dogs short of a picnic? <laughs> <laughs> not, not in compa- yeah, no, no, no capacity of his mind. but. They made a Faustian bargain, devil's bargain. They said, basically, Joe, we'll get the left to vote for you. You will get elected. We'll demagogue Trump. From, but you have to turn over this agenda to the squad, mm. uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, maybe the Obamas. You go into partnership with the devil, you find yeah. out real quick your junior and that's, partner. So we've, never, we've got what we never expected. We've had yeah. the hard, hardest left government, I think, ever. Maybe FDR in the first year was as hard, but... 
And do you take any any hope in the fact that San Francisco Unified School District? I mean, that's no conservative bastion, and their school board members, three of them, recalled yeah. it. And that's what I think you both were implying that they got their wish, yeah. and for the first time, Americans got a, a glimpse, or maybe a yeah. long yeah. look. What, a, this a, is, a double dose of a, what's a, a really going to happen. A taste of Venezuela. Yeah. yeah, and this is socialism in the raw, and whether it's defund the police or make fuel almost impossible to buy, our supply chains, our inflation, our crime, our homeless, it, it doesn't work. And so I think what you're both saying is that there's a particular swing voter, about 20% of the elected, we, call, we kind of caricature them as soccer moms or suburbanites yeah, yeah. or purple voters. But these oh, are the- Or your ophthalmologist you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. And they're worried. Yeah. And, th and they're, they were the people who got rid of uh, the San Francisco School Board. They're the people who just a few, uh, two years ago when we, the rejection of Prop 209 was on the ballot. Remember, people voted to uphold yeah. it. I think they would have done much better with Gavin Newsom had they focused on one candidate and started much earlier, but they had three. So that's one thing to be helpful. The other thing to be helpful, hopeful, and it's, it's helpful to the conservative cause is that they represent certain things that the Mexican diaspora, people who came from Mexico or who are here, will start to think about more as they become more middle class. Right. So and that's you what you're saying in Selma. Yes, and where I live and the, the CHP South, officers are all. Yes, yeah. they're all. What they're saying is. I've, I've had this conversation a thousand times, but I could pretty much sum it up. Hey, Victor, we have AP in our, our school. We do not want bilingual education. I want my kid to get an engineering degree from Stanford or UC Davis, but why would I want to have a bunch of people, most of whom aren't even from Mexico, they're from Central America or Haiti, come into my home, and then some of them don't speak English, and we've got to junk our AP classes, and then we've got M13 and Sor Norteños and Sereños, and you know what they do, Victor? They come up to a Mexican kid, Mexican-American kid, they said, you speak Spanish? Oh, and if they don't speak Spanish, they go after them. And so we don't want that. We don't want to be... So this first generation immigrant is assimilated and now is part of contending for I the future. I think so. It reminds me a lot when you read about the sociological accounts of the great Italian immigration yeah. from 1880 to 1920. <clears throat> and that was mostly from southern Italy. So it was the Sicily and so, yeah. Yes. And they were Catholic like Mexico yeah. and poor and they were discriminated against, and they were all democratic, and they all needed federal help, such as it was in those years. But today, if I say your name's Giuliani or Cuomo, you don't know their political affiliation. Right. And so I think we're gonna get to that much more sooner than the left Agreed. thought. I think we're gonna see maybe 45% of the Hispanic vote vote Republican. From your lips to God's ears. I think so. I know you got More a hi higher with the Mexican-American male because yeah. there's another factor we don't talk about. When you have this kind of, if, I, I don't know how to say it in, in a way that doesn't sound cruel, but what we call Karen's, you know, the people yeah. get in everybody's well, business. Trust me, we're good with it. Go with yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. They get in everybody's business. They have that kind of where I work and, and stamp, they have that nasal voice. Yeah. I go to, yeah. if I go, Late at night, I want to go to Whole Earth. There's somebody there, you know, meow. And that, and that 
that idea that you're going to talk down to people and you have to ha support transgenderism. You have to have abortion on demand. You have to have racial categories. You have to have gay Moral marriage. pietism. Yeah, and that, Immoral. that emerging powerful Mexican-American community, I mean, they get it from their children. Now, they'll say, my kids, what are they teaching my kids at you know, UC Irvine? Gosh, my gosh. And so I don't think that's working well. And, and the people on the coast, although there are service communities, I don't think they quite understand what's going on in the interior where- They're isolated. If you're a roofing contractor, a plumber, electrician, they're mostly Mexican-American, and they're very entrepreneurial, and they're very successful, and they're making a lot of money. Well, they know and how to work. They're very upwardly mobile, whereas on the coast, a lot of those, it's a little bit harder because it's so expensive to buy a home, and the cost of living is high. So a lot of people are, stay in places like Fresno, Bakersfield, Madera, Salma, Sanger, Reedley, all the way up to Sacramento, and they're doing very, very well. And the, and, and the I know people who are labor contractors for big corporate farms that are making two million a year. Yeah. I know electricians and roofers that are making two and a quarter million dollars a year. And when they look at that 13% uh, tax rate, you can't write off over 10,000, right. and they pay that federal 38%. They say, why work? Or I was at the service station the other day, a guy came in with a diesel pickup. I said, how much was it? Big Cummings Diesel, the biggest Ram, I guess it's. Uh, yeah. And he said $102,000. He had a very thick Mexican accent. He said, you know, I got it. This is the second place I came to fill up at $5 a gallon for diesel. My 30, <laughs> my 30 gallon tank, I oh, only gosh. get 20 gallons. And so I, and you can't, you only get $100. Yeah. So he had to go to another one. He said, what happened to this country? Yeah. And he went on a rampage about... Well, Trump told him he didn't listen. Yeah. Dr. Hansen, I, I know you have to speak tonight. You've been so gracious to us. You've given us so much time, and I'm so grateful. And am I right? I mean, you, you, that, you just sit back and take it all in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I marvel at the gift God's given you, and you're a great blessing to our country. And I'm so thankful that you have been a tireless defender of conservative principles. Well, we're in a very... We've had the Great Depression, and we've had the 60s Revolution, and we've had 9-11 and radical Islam. But of all of those, I'm more worried about now because I think this is kind of a cannibalism, this yeah. woke movement. We're yeah. trying to destroy our, our country from within, and people are doing it. And it's not people who are suffering biased or discriminated against or they're impoverished. It's a top-down... Jacobin French Revolution from the top. Yeah. yeah. And that's what's scary. That's a great analysis. Well, yeah. to bring you some encouragement, as a minister, uh, my goal is to educate ministers across the country that it's, it's not going to happen in our community because it's, it's that moral emphasis that can change the heart of a human being. I think being. so. I think so. everybody has to. Carry I think one of the things about religion and transcendence, if you believe you have an internal soul and you believe that your conduct on this material earth will guide its eventual future <laughs> very quickly, then that can give you a sense of courage. Yeah. Not fatalism, but courage. Yeah, I, and, uh, in the absence of courage, truth is an orphan. Yeah. And 
when you're a Christian, it's like, what are they going to do? Threaten you with heaven? I know. So even I, Aristotle, the pagan, said, of all the virtues, courage is the most important because without courage, you can do no you yeah. can do no good. So I'm, I'm confident that people will finally say, you know what? These people want to destroy my value system. They want to destroy the customs and traditions of the United States. And if I don't speak out, I've got to speak out. Yeah, now's think, the time. I think they're starting to. Well, thank you for blessing us. And uh, I, I know you're going to be happy when I say go Bulldogs because we're, we're both part of that. So thank you so much, Doctor. What a treasure to yeah. sit with you. you. Bryce, come on, man. Thank Wasn't you. that awesome? Yeah, wonderful. Well, folks, uh, another episode of Liberty Station, and that's the great Dr. <laughs> Victor Davis Hanson. I mean, man, I can't believe that. Thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll be together again. Uh, we've got more coming. We're here at the Council for National Policy. We're going to sit down with some key folks, but not as cool as him. All right, I'm, I got chills. So God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow night. Bye, everybody.